Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 14 of Sleep Talk, and I'm joined again by Dr. Moira Junger. Hello, everyone. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about making a new start. So this is going up on the 2nd of January. So we're really trying to talk about things to do for health and sleep moving into a new year. So how was your Christmas break, Maura? Fantastic, actually. It's always nice just to um, get away for a little bit, have a bit of downtime. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. How's your Christmas been? Yeah, good. And, you know, as you and I know, in working in healthcare, December is often a busy time in healthcare with people wanting to get things squared away. We have this strange thing in Australia of, you know, got to get it done by Christmas. And yes, end of the come, year as well. Come it's, January, yeah. oh, I could care less, <laughs> <laughs> which has always struck me as a bit odd. That's true. You know, um, yeah, psychology appointments are really peaking anywhere between October and December. And January, a lot of psychologists I know take up most of January off. Because things have, yeah, things have really settled, people have forgotten. Sometimes, not not in all cases, but probably fifty percent of cases. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I often work in January, and one of my observations has been, I really like consulting in January because people are pretty laid back. But come February, they're back into yeah. the year again. So it is it does give you an interesting insight yes. into how our mindset is often. Uh, affected by what else is going on with life. So what's been in the news or topical things you've seen about sleep this month? Well, probably the first thing to talk about in recent weeks was the controversial case of the minor driving home after four lots of 12-hour shifts and doing a five-hour drive home, court ruling that it was pretty much entirely the fault of the employer and got a hefty fine and that's that's brought up a lot of interesting I know there's a lot of discussion on your Facebook page about that and in our clinic too we had some yeah. round table discussions around that. And an interesting thing for me is that although for a court to see it as that clear cut, you know, all the fault of the employer and no personal responsibility about choosing to drive home after working a night shift. And when we just talk about it round the table, everyone's like, yeah, but don't you have some personal responsibility about not Mm. driving when you're sleepy? Mm. And there's really a range of views, both online and people I've spoken to about it in person. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's tragic. It's just, I think it's certainly topical though. Increased awareness of the importance of sleep for productivity, for safety. And that's why we do these sort of products. That's why we're still in the sleep field, isn't it? We just, there's so much to talk about and and to write about and to research and to understand more. Yeah. And sleep permeates so much of life. There is this case, and it was a case that was um, recently decided in the Queensland Supreme Court from an accident a while ago in 2008, but it just raises so many questions about sleep and how much sleep do you need and if you're tired after work is it the employer's responsibility to deal with that is it your responsibility to deal with it didn't even bring up the thing about what about it when you're arriving for work whose mm. whose responsibility is it to be fit for yeah. for work to test if you're fit to work or do you as a worker have to front up saying oh hey i am fit for work or I'm not yeah, fit for work. I know. It's interesting. I used to, years and years ago, I did night shift with even the sleep work. I was, you know, sleep scientist, sleep technologist while I was studying psychology. I used to have a little thing about, because I was so tired, like driving home. I remember thinking to myself, it'd be sort of ironic, wouldn't it? Like, you know, the, the headlines of sleep scientists watching people sleep all night in accidents, falls asleep yep. at the wheel and the irony of that. But, yeah, it's, it's, you have to make decisions all the time and we've, we've both done a lot of shift work Absolutely. in the past with nursing and medicine and a lot of people listening would know shift workers or have been shift workers themselves. And I think they're really, yeah, you've got to make a lot of big judgment calls a lot of the time. I think we'll know more about it over the coming years. 
Yeah, and there is a lot of research going on in Australia, actually. Australia's leading the world in a lot of the shift work research on how to look at markers for feeling sleepy mm. and mm. some strategies to put in place in the workplace. So, yeah, hopefully mm. in years to come we'll have better tools and better ways of managing mm. it. What else have you noticed in the recent weeks in the news? Yeah, there's something else that caught my eye recently. A guy had been sleep-talking and recorded himself sleep-talking and mm. published some audio of that and actually <laughs> some video of himself sleeping and sleep-talking. And that got picked up online, very popular, but also in the Huffington Post who wrote about it, but wrote about it in a way of, hey, let's just make fun of this guy who's sleep-talking. You know, listen mm. to this, see if you can't help but laugh. It's really funny. And was it funny? Oh, is it the content, yeah, what he was sure. saying? Was, yeah. yeah, it was an isolated thing. It's yeah. just gobbledygook and yeah. strange and he presented it in a light-hearted, mm. funny sort of way. But the thing that really got me a bit is far too often for sleep problems, that's the way they get presented in the media is, hey, look mm. at this weird thing. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that funny? But for the yeah. people you and I see day-to-day -day who've got mm. sleep disorders, it ain't funny mm. for them. It's mm. really impacting on them in a major way. And that sort of story can sometimes prevent them from, you know, going public yeah, or saying to their true. doctor, hey, I've got yes. this, could you send me to someone to, yeah. to get some the help? Fear of being this. ridiculed or fear of it not being taken seriously enough. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of people who sleep talk who don't seek help. Like there's not a, in itself, they might not even A, know that they're doing it or B, have any daytime um, in, impairments from that. It might not disturb them so they sleep that much. Absolutely. I remember when I was a child sharing a room with my sister. She tape back in the day of tape recording. She tape recorded me sleep talking. Yeah, <laughs> held it again. It was yeah, it was just a nonsense thing. Yeah. Surely not that old, Moira. Not, not, not the tape recording years. Pre digital, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it, it did strike me as just you know it's it, sometimes that's where media sits about sleep, and we do need to try and make sure that some of the the public health stories about sleep in the media do emphasise how important these conditions are mm. and that they yeah. can really impact on people. You've had a reporter recently interview you about the meditation and sleep because... Yeah, well, they contacted me after talking to yes, you. Yes, I was going to say, I, I think I um, I had that interview as well and I must have mentioned your name. Tell me more about that. I thought you were going to give me the answers. <laughs> so so my, my view on it, and I must admit I'm, I'm really helped... After talking to the guest on our last episode, Jennifer Wint, talking about, mm. no, not our last episode, the, the episode before, before yeah. episode 12, where we talked to Jennifer Wint about dreams. Because talking with her really helps you to get that concept of, well, does meditation have the same effect on the brain as sleep? Mm. Well, in actual fact, meditation and the meditation state and the sleep state are two completely separate things. Mm. But oh, they good. can feel the same. Yeah. You know, it's sometimes what are people looking for? If they're looking for a pause from feeling overwhelmed or a sense of withdrawing from being acutely aware of their environment. They might feel similar in that mm. regard, but physiologically they're completely yeah. different yeah. processes. Yes, and that's what I said as well. But I can't remember why I put her onto you. I don't know but... either. But, but, and then one of the other things she was focusing on is, you know, well, so meditation teachers will say, you know, a unit time meditation is right. just as good for you as yes. a unit time of sleep. And, and I, my sort of feeling was, if what you're looking for is respite from feeling overwhelmed or just some respite from the constant busyness mm. of the day, then space is good. Mm. And that space mm. could be meditative or that yeah. space could be sleep. Could be but staring if, at the wall. Could yeah, it could be yeah. staring at the wall. Mm. But if you're sleep deprived and falling asleep, sleep yeah. is what you need. Yeah, well, that's what I think my summary was, that you can't substitute sleep with anything but sleep. 
for the purposes of restoration. Yep. You know, a wonderful, beautiful meditation or yoga is not going to replace sleep. Yeah, can be nurturing. So, yeah, it'd be, be wonderful. Good, good for the soul. Good for the good for the physical and mental health. But in terms of anyone trying to sort of have shortcuts and thinking, oh, look, I'll, I'll skimp on my sleep because I do a whole lot of meditation and yoga instead. It's, I don't think at this stage at least there's enough evidence to suggest that that's okay. Yeah. You know, it'd be an adjunct and in addition to your normal adequate amounts of sleep. Well, glad we're on the same, yeah. page, <laughs> the same page about that. I'm not sure where the article ended up. Have you seen it? Yeah, it hasn't come on oh, yet, so it'll be on we'll, Nine we'll let you know. On, online. <laughs> and then you saw something, a video online you wanted to talk about. Oh, yes, I did. I saw a recent thing with Koshy's, was it Business Builders? And for those internationally that don't know, David Kosh is a sort of a personality, TV personality in Australia. I think he's the head of one of the football clubs and sort of a well-known person. So not the person I was expecting to have really good, clear messages on health or in the, in the in the sleep realm, but he's put together a whole lot of business videos, short videos for new business owners who are building their businesses, and it caught the eye of the Sleep Health Foundation. Yes, you know, recently in December, it's it's I think it was really good. Just in that it's it's made for employers of small businesses particularly, and giving the messages of the importance of good sleep, mm-hmm. the importance of and the messages like don't don't encourage email checking after hours, and uh, even provide nap time during the day. I was like, wow. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I thought it was good messaging and and it kind of linked in well with what we were talking about earlier, the whole the employer responsibility yeah. thing. And and so maybe there's just sort of a, a zeitgeist, a shift in focus of attention onto the employers mm-hmm. and in terms of, of terms of health and wellness. Yeah. Rather than just and of course it's the individual, but you really do need a lot of support. Yeah. So employers and workspaces being pro-sleep is, is good by me. Yeah. And there was some recent legislation in France. So it's now as an employer, it's illegal to send emails to workers outside oh. of business hours. Oh, even to send them? Yep. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I've always, I've always wondered about this because uh, like my you know teenage children who they email their teachers, of course, these days, and they say, oh, Miss So-and-so didn't get back to me. I said, but it's Friday or it's Saturday. Why, why would you even expect them to get back to you? But they do. There's mm. a real culture. So I'm glad it's going to shift back because I'm, I'm worried about where it was heading. Yeah, that's in France. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm can, not sure. Can you imagine that in a US or Australian sort oh, of business well, environment? Hopefully we'll get hopefully there Hopefully we day. can because it's actually just getting out of control. With yeah. Where is the personal space for your wellness and for your rest? <laughs> if, you know, anyway, that's another another story. Like so the theme for this month's podcast is making a new start. And around the new year, we all often start the year with good intentions, be that health-related goals like stopping smoking, losing weight, getting better work-life balance. So it is a good time to think about what some goals may be in terms of both improving health and sleep for the new year and talk about some strategies for how to actually get that to stick. So rather than come February, the wheels have fallen off, back into old habits, that we actually do make behaviour changes that last. So Moira, what are some goals around health and sleep that people could think about uh, for setting in 2017? Well, before even even being too specific about the goals, I'd just like to go back to the actual drawing on one of our previous podcasts, I think it was about podcast 11, just around health 
anyway, like what is health, what is good health, before we even start thinking about what we want to change or keep within our health. And thinking about people, encouraging people to be more flexible and adaptable to their environment. So Mm -hmm. knowing that, of course, the wheels, we can start off really well with anything, but the wheels will come falling off if increased stress goes up or, you know, time gets poorer or weather changes, a whole lot of stuff can change. So encouraging people to start the new year with and understanding that good health is really about being able to be flexible and adaptable to the challenges in your environment. Mm-hmm. And whether that's in your physical environment, your internal chaos, your you know your work environment, a whole range of stuff to actually just be able to respond and knowing that change comes from within, mm-hmm. that you are the driver of that change, albeit with support. People do need a lot of support, but being able to adapt flexibly to the world is going to come from you and your, your visions of the world. So you covered the top sort of ones about you know health goals, et cetera. So I'd encourage people if they're going to have a health goal such as, you know, to have better sleep, to be quite specific about that, Mm -hmm. to make sure that they might say to themselves, instead of a general broad thing, I'm going to get better sleep next year or this year, to say I'm going to have a specific thing, such as I'm going to turn my devices off an hour before I go to bed Mm -hmm. or an hour earlier than what I'm currently doing and just see that sort of a change, that that by default should help with sleep improvements anyway. And it's a quite a specific, easily measurable, targeted thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And particularly around sleep, I'd also challenge people to not necessarily set goals that are, I'm going to add this in, I'm going to do this thing with the aim of better controlling sleep. Mm. You know, in our last episode, we talked about letting go mm. and actually trying less hard. Yeah, to, less goals in a to, way. To having yeah. less goals on yeah. sleep. Again, it seems strange, but if you're setting goals for improving sleep, it may well be about how the day goes. Mm. So during the day, I am going to ensure that I have 15 minutes of me time each day where I take some time out for nurturing myself. So in healthy respect or understanding, the sleep at night is pretty much a reflection of where you're at day and night. Mm -hmm. It's not, they're not two separate things there is a there is a connection there yeah and that's getting away a bit from those sort of goals of i'm going to get eight hours of sleep Mm. because we can't make sleep come and so trying to strive for a certain amount of sleep is actually pretty tough yes now the time though when i would take that sort of approach is the person who's probably not listening to this podcast but people who you know sleep when you're dead I'm too busy for sleep. I'm not interested in sleep. I'm just going to trade off as much sleep as I possibly can (laughs) for something else. So for someone like that, it is a good goal to set to say, well, come this year, I'm actually going to make sure I spend seven hours in bed each night and have at least an hour where my devices are off and I'm sort of down tools before getting into bed. So in some respects, I'm going to respect sleep enough to create an opportunity. Yeah. For sleep. So again, it comes back to that thing, that the, the, the different goals or the different sort of philosophies depending on where you are already with yeah, your sleep. absolutely. A, whether you have a sleep disorder or not. Yeah. And B, whether you do really appreciate and, and respect the benefits of a good night's sleep. Yeah. And, yeah. And for people who are having trouble sleeping, one of, I think, a, a nice goal to work towards is recognising getting caught up in thoughts about sleep, such as sleep needs to be this or I'm disappointed that I'm not able to do this about sleep. Actual actively letting go of trying to chase that particular mm-hmm. thought. And a really important goal too for me, I'm a bit biased because I work in the sleep disorder space, but really if sleep's not working for you and you've put some things into place making a commitment that you'll ask for help. And you're not going to ask your neighbour, your hairdresser, <laughs> your auntie. Oh, hairdressers are wise. You know? I love they are wise. They have lots of good that, chats. That, that's for sure. <laughs> but you're actually going to talk to a health professional about it. 
mm. and see if you can get some help. Yeah, indeed. And Moira and I have talked about goals and some potential goals, but to give give us some advice on how to actually stick to those goals and make some behaviour changes that stick, we had the opportunity to interview Professor Art Markman. And Art's the Professor of Psychology and Marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the founding director of the program in the Human Dimensions of Organisations. And don't forget his podcast too, a weekly podcast called Two Guys on Your Head. Yeah, I listened to that the other day. It's actually really <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Oh, hi, Art. It's Moira here. How are you? I'm doing well. So thanks for joining us and helping us out with the podcast. My pleasure. So one of the things when we're trying to improve health and sleep... As human beings, we generally know what to do. You know, people who are busy and tired know they need more time for sleep, or people who want to lose weight know they really need to eat better. But why is change so hard? Why can't we get it done? Yeah, it's it, you know, you've hit on exactly the, the most important issue, which is the formulas for doing these things are not the problem. And, and I think there are a couple of things that get in the way. One is, is really the habits that we have existing habits around those behaviors. So our eating behaviors, for example, we do a lot of things habitually without even thinking about it that we can do mindlessly that really get in the way of our efforts to lose weight. And then I think that there are sometimes other activities that also get in the way. So for example, one of the big problems with sleep isn't just our activities around sleep but a lot of the other things that we end up doing that cut into that sleep time. And so we need to be thinking in that case, not just about the habits, but really the obstacles for good behavior. And what are some of those obstacles? You know, why do we find it hard to make these changes? Yeah, so in order to think about this in the best possible way, one of the things that I like to do is to really think a little bit about the way the human motivational system works. Uh -huh. So the, the motivational system has two components to it. It has a, a system in it that engages our goals and our habits and drives us to act. And I call that system the go system. And then it has a second system that when we start an action we no longer want to perform, then that second system tries to stop that action. And I, I, I call that system the stop system. Okay. Now, one of the things about motivation that's important to understand is that the go system is generally speaking much more powerful than the stop system, partly because that stop system is evolutionarily newer than the go system, and partly because that that goes, if you had a system that was set up so that the, the brakes were stronger than the, than the engine, then you could actually have a situation in which you never got anything done. And I give that whole preamble because it's really important to realize that there are two factors that end up making it really hard to do the right thing. The first is that we often engage the go system in ways that tries to get us to do the wrong thing. And then the second is that in many situations, we don't allow that stop system to function as effectively as it could, which then gets in the way of our ability to do the right thing. So when temptation strikes, if we don't hit the brakes hard enough, we end up doing the wrong thing. And unfortunately, that stop system can be impaired by stress, which is why people may stress eat. It could be impaired by drugs and alcohol, which is why people who've had a little bit too much to drink might overeat. 
And sometimes it can even be impaired by overuse. So if you spend a whole day trying to really stop yourself from, say, snapping at a colleague at work or yelling at a spouse or partner, then by the end of the day, you might just end up eating because you, you can't hold yourself back. So one of the terms you use in the title of one of your books is smart change. What do you actually mean by that term? So the reason I like to call it smart change is because a lot of times when we try to change our behavior, we, we just fly by the seat of our pants. We say, well, I need to make changes in, in the way I eat. I need to make sure that I get regular sleep. And, and so you just resolve to do that, right? Here we are, uh, you know, in a new year. And, and people have made New Year's resolutions that they're going to make changes in their behavior. And it turns out that just resolving to do something doesn't actually allow you to make change. The reason I like to start by understanding here's how the motivational system works is because once you understand the way motivation works, then you can begin to work with your brain mechanisms rather than against them in order to change behavior. And in particular, having identified this go system and the stop system and knowing that the go system is more powerful than the stop system in many ways, one of the things that that tells us is that we actually want to reprogram the go system rather than relying on the stop system if we want to change behavior effectively. What about um, for people with insomnia or poor sleep that we see a lot here in our clinic, coping strategies like spending more time in bed or using more caffeine during the day can help them in the short term, but they end up perpetuating the symptoms in the long run. Is doing what helps now rather than in the long run a common pattern of behavior that you find? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, the human brain more than anything else is wired to do what feels like the right thing to do right now. And, and so we're constantly dealing with a trade-off between what's right to do in the long term and what's right to do right now. And most of the time, left to our own devices, we'll resolve that by doing the thing that feels right in the moment rather than the thing that's right in the long term. And so it's really important to overcome that and to focus on what can I do to, to maintain best long-term health and to focus behavior change on creating those great long-term behaviors. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's very useful. So one of the things that we use a lot in treating insomnia is a treatment called sleep restriction. Essentially, it means you get people to spend a shorter period of time in bed and it can hurt when we put that into place. You know, people can feel more tired and you take away opportunity for sleep, which can ramp up their sleep-related anxiety. And some people seem to be better at sort of seeing that through and then reaping the benefits, whereas others sort of almost bail out early or find it too hard. Is that ability to stick with things a trait or can people train themselves to tolerate that a bit better? I, I think the answer is both. <laughs> so there certainly is a trait that, you know, there are some people who are just much more willing to delay gratification uh, into the longer term. I, I was for many years uh, a colleague of Walter Michelle's Columbia University. Walter is the guy who did those great experiments with kids and marshmallows, showing that uh, you know you, you give kid you, you give kid a marshmallow on a plate right now, and you say, look, I'm going to walk out of the room. If that marshmallow is still here when I get back, then uh, I'll give you two marshmallows. And the question is, how long can the kid? delay eating the marshmallow and the experimenter stays out as long as 10 minutes, which is an eternity to a kid and to a young kid with a marshmallow in front of them. And what you find is long individual differences, big individual differences in how long a kid can go without eating the marshmallow. 
And more fascinating, if you track kids in these experiments over the years, which Walter did, um, those kids who are good at the marshmallow test, that is they wait a long time or, or never eat the, the first marshmallow, they're also better in all sorts of other things like studying in school and, and doing other things to delay that gratification. And I think that same individual difference applies when it comes to treatment which is if, you, if you're good at, at delaying that gratification, you're willing to see these kinds of treatments through to the end. And if you're not, then you're wondering why I'm not getting a benefit right now. And, and, and then you get, you get in your own way. So that's the trait part. But the fact is that we can actually learn to do that better. And one of the things you wanna do there is often to work with somebody else, to find somebody else who has gone through the treatment successfully and, and have them help you through it. Right? Have them, have them work with you to say, okay, I know what you're going through right now, and I appreciate that. I went through the same thing. Here's what's going to happen. If you stick with this for another five days, if you stick with this for another month, here are the changes you're going to start to see, and really have somebody else lead you through that process. And in terms of motivating people to change, in your book, Smart Change, you talk about two different types of motivational speakers you know, the sort of high energy, inspirational speaker, and then the bit more low energy, but more educational type of approach, trying to show people why they need to change. I must admit, that's a bit more my style. What's the role for each of these styles in helping people move towards behavior change? The motivational system, we talked a little bit about the GO system. If we break that GO system down a little bit, there are two elements there. There are the, the actual goals that you need to achieve, the steps you need to go through in order to succeed at a particular task. And then you have to have some amount of energy or what, what we tend to call arousal that drives those goals and drives you to act. And ultimately you need both of those in order to be able to get something done. So you need to know the plan, but then on top of the plan, you need to have enough energy behind that plan to actually execute it. So, for example, if you think about somebody who needs to get better sleep, if they, if they sit down on the couch in the evening and they know that the plan is that they have to get up early enough from the couch in order to go through an entire bedtime routine before they, they get to sleep, knowing that plan isn't enough if they don't then energize themselves to actually get up and do the things that they need to do in order to engage that nighttime routine. So ultimately, you actually need both the plan and the energy. Yeah, and what, one of the five tools to change that you describe is optimizing goals. So how should people go about in this, this era, start of the new year, thinking about our goals for, the, for sleep health and for, for general for New Year's? How should people go about choosing a goal and, and optimizing that goal? So a lot of times when people try to change their behavior, they actually fail in their goals from the moment they define the goal itself. And in particular, there are two components to that that I think are most important. One of which is that you want to create what I think of as positive goals rather than negative ones. And by positive, I don't mean happy or peppy. I really mean a positive goal is an action you can perform rather than an action you're not going to perform. So people will say, I need to eat less. Well, the problem is eating less isn't an action. And so what you really need to do is to, is to set a goal that involves things that you're going to do. So, for example, I'm going to use smaller plates from here on out so that I put less food on my plate. Or I'm going to put the portions of food on my plate in the kitchen and then put the, the rest of the food away rather than leaving it out on the table. 
And notice each of those are actions you can perform rather than something you're not going to do, but those lead to the outcome that you eat less. The other thing that's important to do is to think about the goals you want to achieve in terms of a process that you're going to engage in in order to achieve those goals rather than primarily a, an outcome that you're trying to achieve. So if you focus on the amount of sleep that you want to get, that, you know, thinking about that goal can actually create a tremendous amount of anxiety if you don't reach that goal. But instead, if you think about, well, here's my evening routine. Here are the things I'm going to do during the day and during the evening to prepare myself to sleep. Now that process becomes part of your life. And as a side effect, you get a healthier sleep pattern. So, yeah, it's good. It's really quite specific. And we often talk about that too, it's people being proactive uh, rather than reactive. And it's kind of, it sounds similar type of principles. So what about we've got all that now and we've got our health goals and we've set them. How can people go about making the changes put in place to make sure they actually stick to it longer term? Yeah. Well, there's, there's of course, several things that you need to do once you've got that goal. The very first thing you need to do is to create a really good plan to achieve that goal because a lot of times these goals, even if they're a process, aren't necessarily specific enough to be things that you can get onto your schedule in order to do them. So, for example, you know, I many years ago learned to play the saxophone as an adult. And if I had just said I want to learn to play the saxophone, I would never have actually learned to play it. It required a much more specific plan involving finding a teacher, scheduling lessons, figuring out when and where I was going to practice, and perhaps most importantly, identifying all of the obstacles that were going to get in my way. Because a lot of times people are reluctant to think about those obstacles because they're afraid that thinking about the obstacles is going to prevent them from actually carrying through and achieving the goal that they want to achieve. But I think a lot of times those obstacles that you identify, they're going to influence your behavior whether you spend time thinking about them or not. And so it's really important to actually think through those obstacles and plan for them rather than waiting for them to arise and then, uh, and then having them derail your opportunities to succeed. So that, that plan is, I think, one of the most important first steps in really trying to, uh, to get to the goal and to begin to stick to it. I might have a good plan, but I've fallen off the wagon a lot of times. <laughs> So is, is failure something that happens for everybody? And is it okay to fail? Failure happens to just about everybody. I certainly don't know anybody who's tried to make a significant change in their lives and succeeded right off the bat. I think we have to learn to cope with failure. We have to learn to cope with mistakes. It's one of the most important things that anyone can do when they're trying to change behavior. And we have to recognize that we're fighting a lot of habits when we learn to, to deal with failure. If, if you think about uh, school, one of the things that school teaches us is to make as few mistakes as possible. You know, from the very beginning of school, you get your first spelling test, you get your first math test, and every time that you get something wrong, you get a big red X and points get taken off. And what that teaches us is that success in life is all about minimizing mistakes. But really, success in life isn't really about minimizing mistakes, it's about recovering from mistakes. And so the thing we need to learn to do is to treat the failures that we have as learning experiences, as opportunities to figure out what went wrong and then to plan for what we can do better in the future. And, and also to be a little bit compassionate, to realize that if I'm trying to eat less and I go to a party and I overeat, 
that that doesn't mean that I've lost the war. It means I overate one day, and now I need to learn, okay, when I'm in this environment again, maybe I should treat it a little bit differently, prepare a little bit differently, but don't assume that just because I had one bad day, that my, or even three bad days, that my entire attempt to change my behavior is a total loss. Th- thanks a lot for those insights, Art. I really enjoyed your book, Smart Change. Where else can people read your work or hear about you? So I have a website, smartthinkingbook.com. And uh, on that website, I have information about all of my books, Smart Change. Uh, and, and on that, uh, the tab for the Smart Change book, there's also a free copy of the Smart Change journal you can get, as well as information about other books, uh, Smart Thinking, and my latest book called Brain Briefs. And Brain Briefs is, a, is actually a book I wrote with a colleague of mine, Bob Duke. We, uh, we do a podcast called Two Guys on Your Head, where we explore a variety of topics in psychology, hopefully in a kind of amusing way. And, uh, and, and, and Two Guys on Your Head is available in all the places you can look for podcasts, including iTunes and Stitcher and places like that. Great. Well, Happy New Year to you. All the best for your changes and goals for 2017, Art. Oh. Thanks so much. I hope you guys have a great new year. Great. Thanks for your help. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, great to hear from Art. So what were the take-home messages for you, Moira? Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? It just confirmed what I was talking about earlier in that it's really important to be quite specific in something you can measure insofar as, you know, like eating less, I'm going to eat less, or or I'm going to lose weight. He would say, well, I'm going to eat less and I'm going to have a smaller plate Mm -hmm. next year. You know, those sort of quite specific targeted behaviour changes rather than just the broad over umbrella overhanging umbrella goal of I'm going to lose weight. So yeah, I thought that was that was one of the take homes for me. What about you? Yeah, one of the things for me was that sense of it's okay to fail and almost you need to fail to succeed. Yeah. So yeah. almost none of us set a goal, achieve it perfectly, find there's absolutely no hiccups or barriers mm. or obstacles or deviations. Mm. Um, so recognising it's okay to fail and recognising that goals are somewhat flexible. You optimise the goals as you move along and that reflects that if things aren't going quite as well as what you want, you can optimise or shift that goal to mm. um, have a greater chance of success. Yeah, it was good to even hear him utter the word fail or failure because yeah. obviously, and I think he did follow up with the learning opportunities or the learning moments because that's always our the jargon, particularly in psychology. Mm-hmm. That there's no such thing as failure, but I think it's good. You can say the word fail or you know failure, um, but that doesn't mean that you are a failure, or that yep. it's just that the process didn't go so well and you've learned from it. Yeah, I thought that was yeah definitely one of his major take-home messages. So if you're looking for more information about setting goals and optimising sleep and health, you can check some previous episodes, uh, such as on Let It Go, which was uh, episode 13 of our podcast series, or the podcast we did on healthy sleep, which was episode 11. Uh, Chris Pierce has also written a nice post on smart goals, setting achievable goals that's on Sleep Hub, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, so we've come to our clinical tip of the month. Dave, what's the clinical tip of the month? So this tip's really because of some people that I saw in December, and it is a common theme for what we see in our clinical practice, And it's a tip for health professionals that if you're working with people who've got sleep problems, don't just add in more rules. And Mm. does link in a bit with Mm. the theme of our last episode where we did talk about letting go. But very commonly when people are coming to see me, by the time they get to see me as a specialist practitioner in sleep, 
you know, they've seen their general practitioner, they may have seen a couple of other health professionals, and at each point there's been some rules added around sleep. And almost people feel under that weight of judgment, oh, well, this is happening to me because I haven't done it well enough. I didn't follow the instructions well enough. Mm. So my challenge to health professionals is, yeah, don't add in more rules. Mm. If someone's already behaving okay around sleep, move on. Mm. Move on to something else. Mm. And a blind spot, as we've talked about in some other podcasts, is often what people are doing across the day. Yes. And if you're a health professional who doesn't have specific expertise in sleep, Mm. for example, maybe a GP or a general psychologist, you'll absolutely have expertise in stress management across the day, anxiety management, looking after people's physical and mental health. Play to your core strengths because I guarantee there'll be some things there that people could tune up to help their sleep. Absolutely. Because most, I would say most of what we do, or especially the psychologists here, is trying to reduce hyperarousal, trying to minimize daytime stress. And, and, and yeah, and all health professionals know how to do that. Yeah. So Moira, what's your pick of the month this month? Oh, well, I found a, a little really interesting little snippet about sleep in an unusual place. Uh, I like listening to Alec Baldwin's podcast called Here's the Thing. And I listened to it recently, and I thought it was a recent one, but it was actually from 2014, I think, or a while ago. And it was him interviewing Jerry Seinfeld, who I'm a big fan of. I do, I do like both of those guys. So they're just having a really good chat. They're obviously clearly good friends. They know each other quite well, and just talking about this and that and general stuff and what are you doing. And and it came up in in passing about, do you sleep well? And Jerry said, Yeah, sure, I sleep well. Of course, I sleep well. I haven't done bad things to people. <laughs> and it, was, it really struck me. I thought, and then and Alec Baldwin picked it up. Right. So you think you think people who don't sleep well have done bad things to people. And so they had a little banter on that. You're a good sleeper. Yeah, because I, I haven't. You lay down in your pillow. I, I haven't done go, bad things right. to people. I, I have nothing to keep me up. That was hilarious. And clearly I have never met anyone in my life, in clinically at least, who's done bad things to people. That's why they can't sleep. So it was quite a, just a comical thing. But I don't know whether Jerry probably does believe that or not. He talk, yeah. And then went on to talk about regrets. And But have you heard people say that? I do see that as a societal belief that, you know, people who sleep well are people who are at ease <laughs> with their own mind and yeah. don't have skeletons in the cupboard or yeah. things that they're guilty about. So, yeah, so, so, so much, so much <laughs> not so much regrets as in you've done bad things to people. But people, I would say there is, uh, uh, obviously there's an increase in hyperarousal with someone feeling unsettled. Yes. If they're, maybe, yeah, regrets as in rumination about, something at work or their family in a relationship or they feel like they're fretting about something or needing to make a decision about something or feeling overworked. So that kind of stuff is absolutely accurate. But I just thought it was interesting. I just obviously we all like to feel we, – we pick up stuff that's in the general world about, yeah. you know, sleep references and so we'll put a little link to that in the show notes as well. So what about you? Did you – what's your pick of the month? Yeah, so there's a book I've been reading uh, not surprisingly, I'm an avid reader of sleep books. So this particular one's called The Power of When, and it's just been released, and it's by Dr. Michael Bruce. Uh, Dr. Bruce is a psychologist that uh, works in the US. He's a US uh, board-certified uh, sleep psychologist mm. and does a lot of media and public speaking uh, around sleep. Now, the bit I liked about uh, this book is just that concept that's starting to emerge about when we do things is probably just as important about what we do. And that's Mm. something that's coming out of a lot of circadian rhythm, basic Mm. science research, that medicine hasn't paid a lot of attention to so far. Things like 
when do you eat to optimise sort of energy production? When do you take medications to optimise their effect? You know, we often think about it at least in, you know, what time do you go to bed to sleep and what time do you try to wake up? Mm. But in actual fact, our internal body clocks regulate pretty much every body process and there is an optimal time to do almost everything that we don't actually think about because we're often much more just clock as in external clock on the wall driven rather than internal biological clock driven in the way we think about things. So it's a good read. Yeah, I actually Mm. quite enjoyed it. Mm. But for me, it was actually more the bigger picture thing, the Mm. fact that this is starting to get out there in that popular realm about the the influence of the circadian rhythm and how when we do things has such a pervasive influence on health. Because we've talked about it for quite a while, even at a societal level, say school starting times Mm -hmm. for adolescents particularly. But apart from that, it hasn't really been a big, broad discussion, yeah. has it, about, about you know, when to do things like timing of exams or timing of medications particularly. Yeah. That's, a, that's an enormous one, isn't it? Yeah, and it comes into the shift work stuff too. Mm. At the top of the episode, we talked about you know the very unfortunate guy who fell asleep driving mm. home, but that's got a body clock component to it as well because oh, sure. you know, fell asleep in the wee hours of the morning at a time when mm. you'd normally yeah, be sleeping. Yes, and- yes. Great, so I'll have to get onto that one too. I'll, I'll lend it to you when I'm done. <laughs> Thanks. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. So look out for next month's podcast, which will be published on February the 6th. And thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you really have a great holiday and enjoy the rest of January. So, Moira, hope you have a nice time off for the rest of the month. Yes, and Happy New Year to everyone. Send us any suggestions for future episodes or things you'd like us to discuss at podcast at sleephub.com.au. If you've got any products you want us to review or topics or questions you'd like answered, just get in touch. Leave us a review on iTunes and you can subscribe to the podcast via the Sleep Talk app, iTunes or other podcast catchers. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.